Well, last evening we talked about the credibility that we can put in the, in the Bible, the offered proofs of its inspiration and its veracity. And tonight I want to sort of continue in that vein of thought and say that if we believe in God as the supreme being who created the heavens and the earth and all things therein, then we must also believe that God has all power and authority. David described God as being eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. In Psalm 20 and verse 1, David said, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Sometimes young children want to know where did God come from, and this passage answers that question. It says that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He didn't come from anywhere. He's not going anywhere. He is the self-existent eternal God. Again, in Exodus 3 and 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. In Genesis 17 and 1, the Bible tells us that when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk thou before me and be thou perfect. Yes, God is almighty. That is omniscient. He's om, uh, om, omnipotent. He is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, and eternal. Now, considering this, we see that all authority or power has been committed to Christ. After Jesus had uh, conquered death, hell, and the grave, he stood before his disciples on the mountain and said, all power is given unto me. In the revised uh, version, this is rendered, all authority is given unto me. And in Matthew 17 and verse 5 that we noticed a moment ago when Jesus was on the mountain that is called the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples, we hear God uh, acknowledging Christ and saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That was in response to a suggestion by, Mo, uh, by Peter that they build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Christ. Well, you know, there was a time when men had to listen to Moses. There was a time when men had to give heed to Elijah. But now God says, I've committed all authority to Christ. You hear him. In the Hebrews 1 and verse 1, we hear the divine writer saying, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now these apostles that Jesus chose were good men. He chose them from the low walks of life. He took them under his tuition and taught them for three and a half years. And uh, Christ delegated this authority to the apostles to speak for him 
and the Holy Spirit unerringly guided those apostles. This we learn from God's Word in John 17, verses 8 and 14, 16 and 13, and 14 and 26. Now, these holy inspired men of the first century revealed and confirmed the final message of God to man. All who practice in religion what is not contained in the apostles' doctrine, that is, the, the teaching of the apostles, either under specific or under generic authority, sin in doing so, according to Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. In that place, the apostle Paul said that, uh, that uh, if any man uh, was preaching something that was not in accord with God, with uh, what the apostle Paul spake, he said, let him be accursed. Now again, these holy men of God uh, spoke for Christ and acceptance of this truth that uh, this is authority from God and it is specific and generic authority as well, that would revolutionize this world of ours because acceptance of this truth would prohibit people from going back to the Old Testament for religious authority. It would also make void all man-made rules and human creeds. It would put the Pope and other human officers out of business. It would put an end to denominational and digressive practices if men would simply accept the fact that God has made his last revelation to man and it contains the authority that God has. Well, remember, God has all authority. He committed this authority to his son, Jesus Christ. Our Savior delegated authority to the apostles, and they wrote it down for us, and we have it in this little old black back book that we call the Bible, God's Holy Word. Now, our question tonight is simply this. Does it really matter what God says? You know, if we worked and established the truth of God's word, then people still need to know how to answer this question. Does it make any difference what God has said? Are we free to accept it or to ignore it, to reject it or to receive it? Does it make any difference? I say we're living in a time and in a society today that tells you it doesn't matter. They tell us that, oh, well, if you want to deprive yourself by living according to the strict mandates of God's word, then that's all right. But you see, that's not for everybody, they say. One of our presidents said in an interview that was printed in Christianity Today that the approach to specific moral issues should change as popular opinion changes. In other words, it doesn't really matter what God says. What matters is public opinion, what it says. And I say this has had a pervasive influence on our society today. In fact, it's had a pervasive influence on the church. And some Christians have been heard to say that times have changed and the church should change along with the times. And oh, listen, they're not talking about modes of travel. They're not talking about methods of communication. They're not talking about rules of physical life. They're talking about obedience to the eternal laws of God. And this is where we come in conflict with God's will.
Sometimes people like to think that we have altered the elementary, the eternal truths of God's revelation, but we haven't altered God and his character and his law. We haven't altered sin and sinners. So we see that this is error. I find in the world today, and sometimes in the church, there is a live and let live spirit. There's an attitude that we're to say nothing that would by any stretch of imagination offend anyone. It's to be nothing but love, love, love. And I submit that there is no backbone in that kind of preaching. There's no backbone in gospel preaching if done under those circumstances. And many times, unless that's what you're preaching, people despise the nature of it and they also despise the man who preaches it. I ask tonight, have we become so broad-minded, so liberal in view that it doesn't really matter what God says? Have we become so tolerant that anything you want to believe, anything you want to practice, any way you want to worship is simply thought to be okay? Have we reached the point in our society today where we just reach up and mentally turn off anyone who preaches something contrary to what we've always believed or taught and where we categorically reject anything that does not meet our approval? Well, I certainly hope that is not the case and I don't believe it is with the great majority of people who are members of the body of Christ. Again, we ask the question, does it really matter what God says? You know, we have to have authority in religion. And when Jesus took those, uh, those little old cords and drove the money changers out of the temple, the uh, scribes and Pharisees asked him this question, By what authority doest thou these things? And Jesus told them, Well, I'll tell you what my authority is if you'll answer a question for me. He said, the baptism of John, was it, was it of heaven or of men? And they knew they were in a dilemma. They were no match for the Son of God because they knew if they, if, if they said, well, John's baptism was from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you receive it? On the other hand, if they said, well, it was of men, then they had to deal with the people because all of the people believed John was a prophet. So they said, we can't tell. Yes, they knew that you had to have authority in religion. And you know over there in God's book, in the third chapter of Colossians, he says, Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Think about that, folks. Everything we do in religion, in word or deed, has to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let me ask you this question. Suppose some night the sheriff comes to your house, pulls out his pistol and takes the butt of it and knocks on the door and says, open up in the name of the law. What does that mean? That means open up by the authority of the law, doesn't it? He has the authority to tell you to open that door. And the same is true when we do things in the name of the Lord. That means by his authority. We must have authority in religion. And God has given that authority to Christ to tell us what to do.
Christ gave it to the apostles to tell us what to do. They committed it to writing and we have it in our possession tonight. Does God really mean what he says? Well, I submit that it matters what God says if you're interested in a productive, happy life. I want you to look for a moment at Adam and Eve again this evening. How beautiful, how carefree, how happy, how fruitful, how productive must have been their lives in the Garden of Eden. I want you to imagine for a moment what it must have been like to live in a paradise of beauty and safety where there was no fear of anything. There was no disease, no death, no hazards, no hunger, no poverty, no anxiety, no sorrow, no tears. The temperature was always perfect. The food must have been new and exciting every day. The company was superb because they lived in concert with their maker and creator. And all was well until they listened to the voice of the tempter. And let me tell you, if you doubt that it matters what God says, let me remind you that in our society today, our prisons and jails are full. Did you know that there are over one million Americans in jail? Let me show you our hospitals and nursing homes that are bulging at the seams. Let me take you to the insane asylums that are full. Let me show you the cemeteries where the marble shafts shoot skyward, reminding us of the death of loved ones. Let me show you the wasted, blasted lives of those hooked on drugs and alcohol. We have over 12 million known alcoholics in our society today. Let me show you the images of millions of hungry babies and desperate men and women who can't feed them, who are literally starving to death. What's the reason for all of this sadness and sorrow? Every bit of it was caused by those who think that it didn't really matter what God says. Sin got into the world as a consequence of Adam and Eve's transgression. And the result was all of this trouble that we see around us today. The Bible says by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. That's in Romans 5 and verse 12. Look at Cain. Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, their firstborn, was like some of our moderns today, who feel like it, what they want, and what they think supersedes everything else. You see, Cain felt that it didn't really matter what God said. Evidently, God had given specific instructions about how they were to worship God. Somebody said, how do you know that? Well, the Bible says in Hebrews 11 and 4 that Abel walked by faith, that by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How did he get faith? Why, the Bible says in Romans 10 and 17 that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So I have evidence there that Cain was instructed about what to do in the matter of worship. But instead of doing what God had said, evidently, he got something else. And when God accepted Abel and his offering and rejected Cain and his offering, Cain became jealous of his brother. This jealousy turned to envy. Envy turned to anger, anger turned to murder, and he killed his brother in an envious, jealous rage, evidently shedding the first human blood upon the face of the earth. And when God questioned him about it, he replied in a very cavalier fashion, 
Am I my brother's keeper? Cain lost communion with God. He was driven away from the presence of the Lord. He became a vagabond and a fugitive in the earth. And we hear him cry out in despair. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Genesis 4 and verse 13. Oh, I say, if you're interested in living a happy, productive life, then it does matter what God says. In fact, nothing upon the face of this earth is more important and more urgent than what God says. But it also matters if we're concerned about the future of our children and grandchildren. Wouldn't be so bad, I guess, to live just a wild, reckless life if we were the only ones affected. But you know, there are others to consider. And there are so many precious boys and girls today who would grow up to be moral, spiritually minded Christians if their parents really believed that it mattered what God said. I submit that the real reason that that's not the case is their parents do not believe it is necessary to set the right example before them and teach them the precepts of God. There are plenty of children today who can tell you the plot of the latest movie, but they couldn't describe the scheme of redemption. They can tell you the names of all the actors and actresses in Hollywood, but they couldn't name the 12 apostles if their lives depended upon it. They can quote baseball and basketball and football statistics, but they couldn't name the books of the Bible and the reason may be because their parents couldn't do that either. Make no mistake about it, friends, the battle for the minds and the souls of our children is being fought and either won or lost in our homes. Our attitude toward what God says and our attention and our obedience to that is going to impact the lives of our children and grandchildren. Now I know that old maxim Spare the rod and spoil the child is not in the Bible. That's one of those old chimney corner sayings. But the, uh, the equivalent of that is found in the Bible when it says in Proverbs 22 and 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, train is a different word from teach. Beecher said, Children are not so much to be taught as to be trained. To teach a child is to give him ideas. To train him is to reduce those ideas to practice. Now, if you think that your example and your attitude toward what God says does not affect your children and grandchildren, then you need to learn some of the vital lessons of the Bible. I want you to look for a moment at David. David's a great man. He's described in the 13th chapter of Acts as a man after God's own heart. David was passionately loyal to God. He's rightly regarded as a patriot, a resourceful executive, a wise administrator. But I want to tell you this, as a parent, David was an utter failure. His great career was without a blemish until he came to mature years. In an idle and evil hour, he coveted the beautiful woman Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. He committed adultery with her, and to cover his sin, he then plotted the murder of her husband. And when he was confronted by God's prophet, old Nathan, he warned him 
that his attitude toward the word of God would soon bear bitter fruit and that the sword would never depart from his house and how true that was. What sorrow, what heartbreak came to David through his children. One son, Amnon, raped his own half-sister, Tamer, David's daughter, and two years later, another son, Absalom, Tamer's brother, plotted the murder of Amnon, and it was carried out by his servants. Now, Absalom was greatly loved by David because he was one of these dashing, uh, swashbuckling, handsome young men who had a way with people. Uh, Absalom wore elegant clothing. He had long, well-groomed hair. And when he drove his big chariot through the roads and streets, 50 men ran in front of him. Pretty soon he began to covet the power and the kingdom of his father, David, and provoked a rebellion. And David pleaded with his captain of his host, Joab, to deal gently with the young man for my sake. But Joab knew that Absalom's death was necessary if he would put down the rebellion. And when he was surrounded with ten men, they shot those three darts into the heart of Absalom, and it also penetrated the heart of King David. In one of the saddest scenes of the Bible, Joab dispatched a Cushite to go with the message of Absalom's death. But a godly man named Ahimaaz wanted to go, and David permitted it. Well, Ahimaaz outran the other man, and as soon as he entered the gate, David had a question on his lips. And you know that question was not, did we win? What were our casualties? How did the battle go? Oh no. It was, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz loved the king so deeply that he couldn't even answer the question. And about that time the Cushite messenger ran up. And David asked again, is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, The enemies of my Lord and King and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt be as that young man is. And David perceived the answer. David's cries, he went to the wall above the gate to his chamber, echoes down through the corridors of time. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Never forget, friends, that it does matter what God says. Let me tell you that your attitude, your example toward what God says is the strongest influence at times in the life of your children. What a parent is also is more important than what he says. But then I submit it really matters what God says if we're concerned about the consequences of sin. It seems to me that many people, both in the church and out of the church, have accepted the teaching of universalism, that everybody is ultimately going to be saved. In fact, many people have no patience at all with the preacher who tells of the fate of sinners. Many want little or nothing said from our pulpits about the doom of unregenerate sinners. It reminds me of people's attitude toward the dangers of smoking. A few years ago, on The Tonight Show, we're told, 
Johnny Carson uh, was uh, talking about deep sea diving and interviewing a deep sea diver. And the man uh, demonstrated with a film uh, showing an underwater gun whereby he could defend himself against sharks. And in this film clip, he shot this, uh, uh, this gun and immediately it killed the shark instantly. And Carson said, wow, what was in that shot? And the diver's answer was bleeped out because they had a cigarette sponsor for the program. Later it was revealed to be nicotine. You see, the sponsors did not want the audience to know the consequences of cigarette smoking. And many people are like that about sin. They don't want people to know and they don't want to know about the consequences of sin. Did you know that many people want to believe that everybody will ultimately be saved regardless of their spiritual condition? Yes, no matter that there was no faith or obedience, people are judged to be saved. No matter how careless, how indifferent, how disobedient one may have been, he's judged to be saved. A little girl went to the cemetery with her father one time. They were walking around looking at the headstones, a loved one in heaven, asleep in Jesus, and all of those wonderful sayings. The little girl wanted to know where the bad people were buried. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Well, according to them, it's practically impossible for anybody to be lost. And people have told me, well, you know, I'm not a bad person. I'm no worse than anybody else. And, of course, that may be true. But I'd like to remind you that the rich man of Luke 16 was lost, wasn't he? Yes, the Bible says, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, Luke 16 and verse 23. Remember, this was after death and before the judgment, because you remember what that rich man said? He said, I have five brethren living. They were still alive. This was before the final judgment. This was after death. So in the light of this passage alone, the theory of universalism is false. Many other Bible passages support the view that the doctrine of universal salvation is false. Look at Romans 3 and verse 23 where Paul said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What happens to those who are guilty of sin? Romans 6 and 23 said, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you serve Satan all of your days, if you give him the strength of your youth, and you give your years to him, and you never obey the gospel, listen, he's going to pay you your wages, what you've earned. And what is it that he's going to give you? Why, it's death separation from all that's holy, separation from all that's good and glorious. You know, the death that's contemplated here is not separation of the spirit from the body. It's the separation of the soul from God. It's that eternal casting away from God's presence because he says, on the other hand, the gift of God is eternal life. So he's talking about eternal death and eternal life. Again, Ezekiel 18 and 20, it says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, 
neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. In Daniel 12 and 2, the prophet said, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again in Matthew 7 and verse 13, Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth the destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Again in John, the fifth chapter, in verse 28, Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. In Matthew 25 and verse 46, Jesus spoke of those on the left hand, and he said, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Oh, and then I meet others who have evidently accepted the doctrine of once saved, always saved. They really believe that because one time they confessed the name of Christ and were baptized, they shall be eternally saved. You know, I've talked with many broken-hearted mothers who cling to that fragile hope that because their child, their loved one, was baptized one time, that they are eternally saved. But I would remind you, friends, that the rich man of Luke 16 called Abraham father. And Abraham referred to him as son. Now that means that he was a descendant of Abraham, one who had been born into God's covenant during the Mosaic dispensation. He was a covenanted person. So we have an example of a covenanted person who died and lost his soul. Look also again at another passage. and This is the parable of the fishing net in Matthew 13 and verse 47. Where the Savior said again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea, and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. From the kingdom of heaven, the angel will divide some and cast them into the furnace of fire. Now think about this. The only way to get in this kingdom is how? By the new birth, isn't it? Because Jesus said in John 3 and 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So from these conclusions, it's obvious that some who have been born again, who've entered into the kingdom, have become wicked and will finally be cast into the furnace of fire. In writing to the children of God who were dangerously close to losing their souls, an inspired penman wrote in Hebrews 10 and verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence which hath great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Again, 
In Hebrews 4 and verse 1, he said, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Again in Hebrews 3 and verse 12, we hear the same writer saying, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an uh, evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now there's no doubt in my mind that God is merciful, compassionate, and loving. The Bible pictures Him as this kind of God. After all, God gave us Jesus, didn't He? He gave us the church, the Bible, all spiritual necessities of life. But that same Bible that says God is love, 1 John 4 and 8, also declares in Hebrews 12 and verse 29 that our God is a consuming fire. Remember how God has dealt with sinners in the past. He turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. He consumed Nadab and Abihu with fire. He burned Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth. He destroyed the Egyptian army in the midst of the Red Sea. And he killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's troops in one night. He drowned every person living in Noah's day except those eight souls who were in the ark. The Bible tells us of the fate of Judas who betrayed our Lord. It says he by transgression fell that he might go to his own place, Acts 1 and verse 25. What was that place? Well, Jesus said of the, of the apostles, none of these is lost save the son of perdition. So we know what that place was. Does it matter what God says? Well, it certainly does if you're concerned about the consequences of sin. And although Jesus loved the whole world, so much that he gave himself for it. Jesus was called the friend of sinners, and yet the strongest words ever to fall from human lips were spoken uh, about the punishment for sin by Jesus. The word for hell, which describes the lake of fire, eternal punishment, is the word Gehenna. That's found 12 times in the New Testament. Did you know that 11 of those 12 times it was the gentle Savior from Galilee who used that word? It's a contradiction in thought to say that you believe in a person and yet you don't believe what he says. And so if you really trust the Master, you'll receive all of his teaching rather than accepting only what you want and rejecting the rest. But then I want to mention lastly tonight that it matters if we intend to make heaven our eternal home. Maybe it wouldn't be so tragic to ignore the message of God if death were the end of it all, as many people believe. There are some materialists who think when a man dies, that ends it all. And that's certainly a gloomy opinion. But if the rich man were here tonight, he could say, well, I died all right but I had an existence in the spirit world. Don't believe those who tell you otherwise. It is said that Alexander Campbell and uh, his uh, nemesis that he debated about uh, whether or not 
the Bible is true and whether or not Christianity is true, uh, we're discussing one time in a meeting after that famous debate over God's little acre where all of his loved ones were buried. And uh, this man remarked, he said, you know, uh, I have no fear of death. I have no fear of death or of punishment. And uh, Alexander Campbell said, well, do you have any hope in death? He said, oh, no, I have no hope in death. He said, well, look out yonder at that ox feeding out yonder. He says, you're in the same condition. He has no fear of death, and yet he has no hope of in death. Well, a person should realize the consequences of living in sin because man is more than simply animal life. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 and 16, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now that spirit or the inward man simply lives in this body. It's called a tabernacle by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. And when a person dies, there's a separation of the two. In recording, when Rachel died in childbirth, here's what Moses wrote in Genesis 35 and 18. He said, it came to pass as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Note the clarity of language there. A departure of her soul from her body is called death. Solomon said that when one dies, the spirit returns to God who gave it. In other words, to his disposal to do with it as he sees fit, Ecclesiastes 12 and 7. And James made it very clear when he said in James 2 and 26 that the body without the spirit is dead. To overthrow the materialistic, annihilationist view of the Sadducees who didn't believe in an angel, they didn't believe in, uh, in a resurrection, uh, they didn't believe in a life after death. They're sort of like our modern Jehovah Witnesses in that respect. But Jesus quoted the language that God used to describe himself to Moses. And although it had been hundreds of years since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived, Jesus quoted God as saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or I will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am. In other words, in some sense, those great patriarchs were still living as far as God was concerned. And Jesus then added, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You know, I've asked uh, the witnesses many times to complete uh, this syllogism. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the, of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, what? Well, the conclusion necessarily is there is a sense in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still live. Luke 20 and verse 38 records Jesus as saying, for all live unto him. That means there's an afterlife. That means that there's something beyond the grave. 
It's not all of life to live if prepared. And it's not all of death to die if unprepared. Either you and I are going to be in a place of waste and loss, where hope is a stranger, where no gospel ray of light has ever penetrated, or we're going to be in the presence of God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the angels, and the redeemed spirits of just men made perfect. Because heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. I've heard people say, Oh, you know, if I'm lucky to get to heaven, if I'm lucky enough to get to heaven, I don't care if I just live in a little cabin out here in the corner somewhere. Well, let me tell you something, folks. If you go to heaven, it won't be because you were lucky. It won't be because Dame Fortune smiled on you. It won't be, as some people count it, when they win the lottery that uh, uh, your lucky number has come up. It won't be because you won in some kind of a celestial dice roll. It will be because you have heeded the words of Almighty God. It will be because you have done what the Apostle Peter said, and that's given diligence to make your calling and election sure. I'm through tonight. I may be speaking to someone who's never obeyed the gospel and never tendered obedience to the commands of God. Let me tell you very clearly and plainly, as I know how, what God has commanded you to do. You know, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You know, if I can ever bring people to ask the question, What is God's will for me? I can tell them quite plainly. Jesus said, This is the will of God, that you believe on him that hath sent me. We must believe in Jesus. We have to have faith in him. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Again, we must repent of sins. Jesus says, unless you repent, if you accept you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We have to acknowledge Christ. Matthew 10, 32, we have to be buried with the Lord in baptism. And Jesus said that when you do that, you'll be saved from your sins. What happens to saved people? Well, the Bible says in Acts 2.47 that the Lord adds the saved to the church. That means your name is written in heaven and recorded in glory. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.